1: First of all, I'd like to say thank you, Simon, for allowing me to come home today to talk to you yeah, very well. about what you do. You're welcome. And hopefully share some of what you've learned along the way yeah. with, with the people who are in the business of helping other people. Yeah. So I'll just introduce the listeners to yourself. This is Dr. Simon Martin, a spectacular individual who was a general practitioner, doctor, And he's now enjoying his second incarnation as the story bodger. Mm. Uh, Teller of tall tales, taradiddles and stories that make you think. I want to talk to you about the power of stories to teach and inform and about creativity. Okay. And what we as teachers can do to enhance that in other people. Mm -hmm. My burning question for you first is what is a taradiddle? I'll display my ignorance. A
0: taradiddle um, A taradiddle is a sort of a lie It's a sort of a white lie It's the kind of thing that When you're about six And your mum says Have you cleaned your teeth? And you say Yes And your (laughs) mum You know your mum knows You haven't And she says Go and clean them That's a taradiddle It's a tall story It's a white lie That everybody knows is a white lie But it's a sort of a It's
1: an enjoyable untruth (laughs) I love that. So, uh, we met in 2012, Mm -hmm. just retired from general practice. Yes. um, Where were you then in terms of stories, teaching? Well, stories have followed me through my life,
0: now that I look back on it. I was brought up by Irish parents, surrounded by tall tales, mischief and blarney. And then I got all sensible and I went to medical school. And... Along the way, as I got learnt more, as I got more experienced, I realized that some of the most effective ways of getting information across to people, particularly people who are worried or frightened, was by using metaphor or using story. And then, as I came towards the latter part of my career, I suppose in the last eight to ten years, I found that the young doctors were seeking out my opinion about things, particularly some of the soft stuff, not the hard-nosed clinical medicine that they'd been trained in, but the soft stuff, the interpersonal skills, the coping strategies. And explaining this, talking through, doing tutorials, I found that story was very effective. And I'd been on a course learning clinical hypnosis, NLP-type skills, and was bowled over by what was happening with story told to people who had been encouraged to get into a relaxed frame of mind. So I started going to storytelling clubs, listening to stories, telling stories. And so in a way, it went full circle back to childhood. And now I love telling stories for the fun of it. And if there's a message inside there, that's fine. You pull it out. But certainly when I was was practicing, stories just had a resonance and people... Mm -hmm. Follow stories. Humans love stories and they stay with you. And so both easier for me to do, people listen to them and then they remember it afterwards. And so I find it very, very powerful.
1: And how did that dawn upon you? Was it a single aha moment or a, a gradual breaking of the light?
0: I think it was a gradual breaking of the light, yeah. I look back, I was asked to do a meeting for the entire practice I think it was about 2008 so we're talking 10 years ago on stress management relaxation techniques it was a, a sort of a self-care kind of afternoon for our entire medical team the doctors nurses the reception staff and now I look back at the notes that I wrote for there and I said I'm, I'm going to share some concepts with you and tell you some stories and I th- hadn't really thought through I hadn't really started on my more Serious is the wrong word, Uh, (laughs) storytelling ventures at that point. But um, that bringing in, I want to tell you some stories. And I did, and I used some personal experience stuff at that point. And I think looking back on that, which was very successful after, and I did about a third of it, there were three of us largely involved in doing it. The thing that struck me was how the stories had resonated with people.
1: And so that was a real kick in the right direction. Is there a particular story that did it for you, that the penny dropped into place as you were using it for others, or a favourite story that you returned to?
0: Uh, I think with energy. teaching, um, and this was really before mindfulness kicked off and became this sort of rather ubiquitous, overblown concept that it is at the moment and lost some of its meaning, um, was about actually stopping and thinking and looking after yourself. And the story that I told was a Mars bar story. And while I was telling it, I could see heads nodding round the room. But I explained that I'd been really, really busy. It'd been one of those days, loads of visits, rushing to get from here to there to everywhere. And I'd come back to the surgery, and I'd passed the little sweetie shop on the corner. I'd gone and I'd bought myself a Mars bar, and I was looking forward to eating this Mars bar. And this is my, you know, my guilty treat before I started afternoon <laughs> surgery. And so I came through and I said hello to the reception staff and I went down to my consulting room and I sat down and I put the Mars bar down next to my computer and I fired it up and I started typing up the notes from the afternoon before doing my evening surgery. I looked at my watch and I'd got oh, eight or 10 minutes. So I peeled open the top of the Mars bar and carried on typing, continued on putting the, putting the notes on, putting the information into the computer and I looked and I'd got one minute to go till afternoon surgery and I'd finished the notes. And I reached to pick up the Mars bar, and it wasn't there. And the wrapper was in the bin, and I'd obviously eaten the Mars bar. And so my guilty secret, my guilty pleasure that I was going to have, I was so busy multitasking, doing several things, I hadn't even noticed the Mars bar going down. So all it did was add to my calorie intake, but no enjoyment whatsoever. And the point that I came back to with that and illustrated with that, and during the tutorials, we actually sat and ate a piece of chocolate, was that from then onwards, if I was going to stop and have a bit of chocolate, a Mars bar, whatever, as a guilty treat before starting my afternoon surgery, write the notes first, get that done, stop, and eat the Mars bar. Multitasking is overrated uh, in fact, I don't believe that humans can multitask. I think we switch, switch, switch from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. And we don't do any of them terribly well. So the Mars Bar story resonated with people and certainly it resonated when I did several times, told it in tutorials on long-term survival in general practice was that, no, just you know, don't sit and have your lunch at your desk. Do the work, make time, go away from your desk, spend, even if it feels as though you're, You know, you're not doing productive time. Yes, you are. You're looking after yourself. Stop. Eat your lunch. And while you're eating your lunch, all you're doing is eating your lunch or whatever it is that you're having. So that was one of my favorite ones.
1: That's a great story. That resonates with a lot of people. Mm. It certainly
0: does with me. Yeah. I think people are so busy, busy, and they think that they're being more efficient by cramming a sandwich while they're doing this, while they're doing something else. And they actually miss out on just momentarily recharging the batteries and you can build in lots of little episodes in your life in your day of just recharge even if it's only for a split second before you carry on to the next thing and
1: it just gives you so much more energy and so much more time that's great thanks Larry. so now you go professionally yeah by the name of story budget yes what's that all about it's the
0: <laughs> it's the two things that I do. A bodger is a greenwood turner. Uh, it's a term that comes from chair manufacturing, particularly around in the Hemel Hempstead area. So, so a semi itinerant greenwood turner. So, the wood would be the trees would be cut, split, turned all in the same day, practically. So, you're working wood that is green, that is wet, and you make chair spindles, spindles for spokes of wheels, uh, stair banisters, that kind of a thing. And it's a a technique I find fascinating. I love the outdoors, I love woodland, and I enjoy crafts, country crafts. And so some time ago, I went on a course to learn how to do bodging. And when I retired and started volunteering for the National Trust, they were very keen to have someone doing greenwood turning demonstrations. So together with the team at the National Trust, using their commercial workshops. I built a pole lathe, um, and so I do pole lathe turning demonstrations. Not very often, uh, but they're great fun when I do. So a pole lathe turner is a bodger. So a bodger who also tells stories is a story bodger. And it gives me a name, it gives me a handle, that as far as I know, there are no other story bodgers. Uh, when I registered my website as storybodger.com, I didn't have any competition <laughs> and I was able to get storybodger at gmail.com and this kind of a thing. So it's a bit of silliness and it's a bit of fun.
1: That's fantastic. Is that a, almost a separate personality for you rather than being Dr. Simon Martin, which is uh, oh, Storybodger is more the... Yeah. I mean,
0: storybodger is actually allowing the person who's always been there to come out I no longer have the necessity to be serious and sensible and have this sort of persona that people can trust and have confidence in although yeah he was there and one of my colleagues one of the nursing staff used the consulting room next to mine and one morning she came over to me at the end of her morning surgery and mine. And she said, I've heard laughter coming out of your consulting room this morning. She said, your morning sounds an awful lot more fun than mine. Can I swap places with you? Um, so some of the consultations were able to actually be fun and let your hair down a bit. So is it an alter ego? In many ways, no, it's actually me. It's an opportunity to be the person that I, that I really am rather than are one of the many heads that we put on we all live or tend to live behind behind facades behind sort of an image that you project to the outside world and sometimes yeah the story budger your ego allows me space for gratuitous silliness
1: which is fun we should all make some space for gratuitous silliness (laughs) we've worked together since 2012 and it's an ongoing tutor-student relationship which has Mm. become more of a friendship it's great fun and I really look forward to our sessions, I hope you do this. Yes, I do, very much so. And what's been fascinating for me is to watch you expand what you do creatively mm-hmm. as we've picked apart some of the protective shell of having to be perfect. What are your views about having the perfectionism that we are in educated to believe is necessary? That it's a two-edged thing. Yes, it's perfectionism.
0: With a medical career, it's always important to be good enough, to be up to date, to be competent and to be safe. And I think all the practicing doctors that I know care very, very deeply about getting it right and about not missing stuff. And of course, you do miss stuff sometimes. Some of the diagnoses are later than you would have liked them to be. And that's always difficult, and you have to live with that for, sometimes, for, forever. So a degree of perfectionism is useful until it becomes damaging. And one of the images that I had on the wall in my consulting room was a picture of a Persian rug. And I talked about it with people when it became clear that perfectionism was becoming a problem for them, and pointed out to the Persian rug and the fact that when Persian rugs are being made, they deliberately put an error into it. They're never absolutely perfect. There's always a mistake somewhere or other, usually quite small, tucked in somewhere or other, but they deliberately make a mistake. And the argument goes amongst the Islamic people who are making the Persian rugs is that to make a perfect rug would be blasphemy that it's only the almighty can make something that's perfect, us humans can't. And so when they make their rugs, they put a deliberate mistake into it. So all of us humans have got mistakes in. And the Native Americans do the same. uh, When they're making the beautiful bead belts and bead jewellery with all those tiny little beads that are all stitched together, again, they deliberately put a mismatch. Somewhere in it, there'll be one that's wrong, uh, the wrong colour in with a with a whole flood of yellow or whatever, and they call it the spirit bead. And accepting and actually cherishing imperfection is one of the ways, I feel, of actually dealing with it and accepting. And then living with it and finding ways of living with our
1: mistakes as well. And I love that term, the spirit bead. Yes,
0: yeah. Sort of, I really love it,
1: yeah. That's just dropped like a pebble into something deep in the back of my mind. <laughs> I think that ties very, very comfortable with one of the things that I'm very eager to pursue with, with the teachers and people mm-hmm. that teach. You, you don't have to be perfect. Everyone is imperfect in their own particular oh, yes. individual yeah, way. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. You better believe it. <laughs> oh, gosh, yes.
1: <laughs> Everyone brings their own set of experiences, their own take, on any situation. Yes. Yeah. You and I would approach a similar situation entirely differently, I'm sure. Yeah. Which, as a business person, or as someone in the business of teaching, as you are and I am, that means there's no competition for who we are.
0: No. No, we are ourselves. Um, and going back to your asking about budget, yeah, that's mm. just allowed me to be,
1: this, this is who I am, take it or leave it. I think there are 7 billion people on this planet and your tribe is out there somewhere. They'll find you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can I just look back to the Story workshop, which I'm going to be attending yes. later this year? What is going to be happening over the course of the weekend? <laughs> and Who's it for?
0: This is a weekend that um organising at Dudmaston Estate near Bridge North. We're using a bunkhouse on the National Trust property Uh, with surrounding countryside, woodland. And the reason behind it is a wonderful storyteller called Claire Muran Murphy. I heard Claire telling nearly two years ago now and was just bowled over by her cheerfulness, her enthusiasm, her way of interacting with an audience physicality in storytelling i could go on please do <laughs> she just was wonderful i found her completely captivating i'm from an irish background she has a wonderful lilting irish voice that i could listen to all day and i knew that i wanted to go to a teaching course led by claire and i contacted her not long after the uh, festival where i'd seen her and said like if anyone's doing a workshop if you're organized, if someone's doing a a teaching session or if you're teaching anywhere, please let me know. I'd love to go. And last year I saw an advertisement, it was up on Facebook, about a storytelling in nature workshop led by Claire Murphy. And it was in about 10 days hence when I saw it. And it was just impossible. We had family coming to stay. It was in Wicklow Mountains in the Republic of Ireland. And there were 101 reasons why I couldn't go. If there'd only been about 95 reasons, I'd have I'd have probably gone. Uh, you know, please do that one again, and if it's nearer to home, I'd love to go. And then I thought that if anyone's going to, no one else is going to organise it, if I want to go on this, then I need to organise it myself. So that's what it is. It's an excuse to be coached by somebody who I think is a brilliant, brilliant storyteller. It's deliberately outdoors orientated. So it's aiming at people who are experienced storytellers or early stages of their storytelling journey. So it's a mixed ability group, honing storytelling techniques out of doors when possible, indoors if it's chucking it with rain with a like-minded group of people and hopefully just actually having a lot of fun. So you at having light-hearted, fun, meeting an interesting, eclectic, enthusiastic group of people. And I, I'm
1: looking forward to it so, so much. So am um, Yeah. This will be my first venture into storytelling in any mm-hmm. form other than creative writing. So I'm very excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit nervous because it's a new thing for me. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'll be surrounded by it. Yeah,
0: you. You, you won't be alone in being started, but there are there's one or two others who are just in their early stages telling stories, by the same token, there are three or four who are on the professional circuit as well. So there's going to be a mix. And what I know of the storytelling community, they're very generous with sharing, sharing ideas and concepts and a often just very interesting and sometimes a little bit off the wall group of people but I think you'll cope with that.
1: that. That sounds like it's the right room for me. <laughs> I always want to be either the least wealthy, the least educated, the least informed person in the room, because if I'm the smartest person in the room, I'm in trouble. And I'm in the wrong room. <laughs> so are there any places still available for that? There are.
0: At the time we're recording this, I've got three spaces left. It's just over two months off now, but there are still spaces available, yes. So fantastic. So how would people get in touch with you? Um If you have a look on my website, which is storybodger.com and there is a tab on that for Storytelling in Nature Workshop and that will lead you all on there to want more information,
1: email me, storybodger at gmail.com. Thanks for that. Great. So go and talk to Simon. I'm going to be there. So you may get to meet both of us at the same time. that will be great. So... Regarding your stories, do you own to just vanish into the echoes or do you have any plan to capture, record or publish any of your stories, Simon?
0: Possibly record or video or whatever. Um, write down, no, because writing it down is very different. I'm aware this is an audio recording, but I use a lot of movement, a lot of gesture. And one of the stories that I do is about a holy man and a samurai. And I start off by saying mountain and pointing up, 45 degree angle up towards the ceiling. And you wait for a few seconds, four, five, six. It feels like quite a long time. And during that time, your audience are processing mountain. Yeah, okay, I've got that in my head. It's you know tall and it's spiky and it's got snow on the top. You haven't got to describe it. Once you start writing it down, you've got to start telling people a bit about it. You've got to start fleshing it out. Whereas in story, often you can just you can be quite minimalistic and allow people to, to paint the edges. So there was a saying that people preferred the plays on the radio because the scenery was better. Mm. And it's the same kind of idea, the same kind of concept. The other thing that I love about it is that stories change every single time you tell them, depending on the mood that you're in the audience, you're with the time of year, you name it. And I love that immediacy and the fact that it's alive. And so a story that I've told if somebody else in the audience listens to it and likes it and think, oh, I like that story, and tells it to somebody else. My job is done. There is no copyright on the spoken word. So it's there. It's up for grabs. And it's that what keeps it alive and going. In some ways, once you've recorded it or written it down, it becomes a set object, a thing, rather than this live in it's ephemeral it's alive it's there while it's being told and when it's done it's there inside your mind inside somebody else's mind to run with or not and if it's a good
1: story it'll run it'll live and obviously that that's predicated on personal networks and people conveying the story on one to another
0: yes yes though i may i haven't ruled out recording one or two of them and
1: youtubing them I'm really looking forward to seeing that because <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting with you and your arms are whirling around, you're bobbing around in the seat. I'm wondering whether at some point you're going to smash the microphone up. <laughs> <laughs> some extravagant uh, I'm, actually fe- I'm actually feeling
0: quite constrained here because I'm sitting down. Uh, normally when I'm telling, I have a little three-legged stool with a screw winder on the top of it, which allows you to twizzle round and stand up and sit down and whatever. It's, um, you can be quite mobile um, and use the stool as a prop or whatever so actually sitting in a comfy chair and telling stories although that is very much a technique that can be used it's a bit static
1: i like to be a bit a bit dynamic so uh, just to, to sort of wind up here are there any nuggets that you'd like to share with the listeners about your teaching experience in general or, or even life in general that you wish you'd
0: known earlier I wish I'd started doing it earlier and recognized the value in the story aspect of telling and of teaching. But otherwise, no, nothing else I'd changed. I'd like to have started doing it sooner and earlier and had the confidence, if you like, to come out of the woodwork with it rather than just continuing with my head down and getting on with the day job, which was very, very busy but it was something that that grew and developed with time and one of the small things and one of the things that i shared with a number of people and i found really very useful was having a small object sometimes that you could pick up and hold one of the techniques that i learnt with uh, the sort of self hypnosis technique for becoming relaxed. You have visualized yourself going down, perhaps walking down the beach uh, or down the sand dunes onto the beach and just feeling calm and relaxed and confident and in control and bending down and picking something up mentally and bringing it back up with you to hold in your hand to remind you of that calm and confident and in control. And in my consulting room, I had a little pile of beach pebbles and you could just reach down and pick up a beach pebble, which feels quite cold and smooth and reassuring and comforting in your hand. And as an object that actually just sometimes just helps to make you feel grounded, it was very, very useful. And if I may just tell you one brief little story Please. about a patient that was coming to the end of her life. It was a lady who I had known professionally she worked in a profession allied to medicine so I'd come across her via work who had a difficult end stage it really wasn't pleasant and although I was very happy to go and see her and look after her in her home and meet up with the district nurses who were going in there were aspects of her care that were challenging and difficult not her herself but what the disease process had done to her body And so I would arrive at her house and know that this was not going to be fun, Uh, but we were going to go and do it anyway. And I, for whatever reason, just picked up one of the little beach pebbles from the pile on my shelf in my room and put it into the pocket of my jacket. And as I walked down the drive, down the path towards her house, just held this little pebble from the beach in my hand. And I felt somehow solid and grounded and in a... Odd kind of a way, just no, that's fine, that's okay. You know, you know you can do this. As I went into the house holding the small pebble, and went and dealt with the situation, dealt with her and sorted out and decided what treatments we were going to do next and how we were going to ease her passing, which was inevitable in the next two, three weeks or so. And then as I came back out of the house again, using another technique that I'd been taught by another patient who was dying, of actually just noticing what's outside so you come out difficult situation and look and see a tree that was in blossom or the birds flying past or something else just momentarily it only need be seconds just stop and look and go yeah that's beautiful isn't it and then carry on on your way so the little grounding object that small pebble Sometimes just having them next to your desk, just sort of sitting there, a little bit like a stress ball or whatever, but just holding it in your hand can be really, really useful. And I shared that with a number of people. I shared it with a number of patients, some of whom took away beach pebbles from my consulting room and had them at home. And so I think that one is one to share.
1: That's fascinating. It, it, it ties in with my experience with NLP as a, a physical anchor. Mm-hmm. And exactly. That you'll hold it in your dominant hand all the time.
0: Yeah, mostly yeah, I'm left-handed without thinking about it. Yeah, I reached over and picked that one up. So it is, it, 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 it's, it's an anchor. Um, and obviously your anchor can be physical or it can be a mental thing. It can just be a, a, a gesture, a way of holding your hands or whatever.
1: Yeah. And I love that idea of bringing back from your, in your case, your self-hypnotic yes. journey to the beach to bring a physical artifact back, to anchor you back into that state rapidly. That's, yes. that's something I will... I will use now mm. because that's not a technique that I've been given.
0: Okay. Yes. I just, I mean, you, you don't say bring, it doesn't have to be a, a physical object. You, you imagine the physical object mm-hmm. that you're bringing back. So really at a future time, when you actually need to just feel calm or relaxed or whatever it is that you're anchoring, you can just hold it in your hand. There isn't anything there, but you feel as though it's there. So just holding mm-hmm. it is very helpful. And I, I, started to collect a whole selection of odd eclectic objects on the shelf in my consulting room which were of a suitable size to hold mm-hmm. so they, that was one of the, the the connecting things between them was that they they could hold not quite all of them but nearly all of them that somebody might bring back from a self-hypnosis technique. Not that I shared that necessarily with anybody, but they were there because I knew they were. But the other subliminal thing that they did was that people saw this on just on one side. It wasn't in your face or anything, but I think recognised that there's somebody who's doing some thinking here. There's something a bit different and unusual about this consulting room. And watch this with the carved wooden bear over on the side of the desk yeah. um, and the marbles and a small silvery starfish and nearly all of them had stories behind them which again I used in teaching with students and young doctors and so they, they sat there as an aid memoir to me also something you'd pick up and hold in your hands if you wanted to and as a, a message really that hopefully that this person is approachable you can come and talk about stuff and there was a little small pile of child's building blocks, which are useful on two levels. One, they're sending a message, this guy likes working with children, but also it's very useful for testing manual dexterity in small children. You just give them one, and then you give them another one and see what they did with the first one. And so watching what they're doing with their pincer grip withholding. So they're, they're actually very useful from a, an assessment point of view, but they're there for, for fun
1: and for um, making a statement. That's terrific. Now, of all of the the props that you have sitting on the the top of that table there, what is your favourite one? Or who is your favourite one?
0: This one. <laughs> um,
1: I just picked up a
0: bear. small brown soft toy bear. This one is favourite. because one of the things I did in the tutorials was talk to young doctors about ongoing relationships with your patients, a long term survival in general practice and coping strategies and this bear arrived in my room very early on in my career in a box of toys donated by somebody and I looked at the bear and I thought look you're going to get horrible you're going to get sucked you're going to get covered in all kinds of unmentionable stuff um, you can't stay in the box of toys uh, this is long before the, um, the cross infection police meant we couldn't keep toys in our, bed, in our consulting rooms anymore so the little bear went into the bottom drawer of my consulting room desk and a small girl came in she must have been about four or five with her mum and dad and she came in she had distinct health problems and she was facing surgery in the future and she came in and she'd come into my room with a big beaming smile on her face come around the door open the bottom drawer of my desk take the bear out and hold him and she held him for the entire consultation while I listened to her chest to listened to her heart or whatever else it I needed to do. And at the end of the consultation, she smiled at me, put the bear back in the drawer, closed the drawer and went out. There was no sort of suggestion that the bear was hers, that she was going to keep him. Uh, this was my bear. And she came and she held it for the entire consultation and then put him away again. And... After a while, she went into the children's hospital for her surgery and sadly she didn't survive. And grief and grieving people don't associate the fact that doctors and caring people actually from time to time need to stop and grieve for somebody that they've lost. And so the little bear gave me the opportunity of talking to people about actually you need to deal with it. You've got to acknowledge your own humanity that your patients will die. And some of the patients when they die will be people who you know well that you've got to like very much and you'll miss them. And to go, okay, on we go. On with the next one is denying your humanity. So the bear is about humanity and stayed in my consulting room for the remainder of my career in the bottom drawer of my desk. And from time to time he came out, usually when a small child came in with their mum or their dad or both, carrying their own bear I'd open the bottom of the drawer pick the bear out and I'd sit and hug the bear as well so small child would be hugging the bear and I'd be hugging my bear on here so the bear was doing two things I was hugging the bear and remembering the bear that the little girl had liked so much and had kept putting back again at the end of the consultation but also small child would come with a bear would grin and think this was really funny that this big, powerful doctor that they'd been brought to see was sitting, cuddling a small teddy bear. Um, and so this one, amongst all of them, I think is the favourite. I'm not even sure that he's got a name. I think he's just called Bear. He's a little bit
1: like Mr. Bean's bear, but not quite so bashed about. That's fabulous, isn't it? Thank you for that. That's, that's a touching story.
0: That's fine. Come. I
1: would just like to remind the, the listeners that you are Story Bodger. Thank you. www.storybodger.com. Yes. And your email addresses? Storybodger at gmail.com. And there are still a few places available for the Storybodger Storytelling Workshop, 16th and 17th of June 2018, Dudmaston Hall Lats in Shropshire, in the UK. Okay. Simon Martin. Okay. AKA Story Bodger Thank <laughs> you so okay. very much. Thanks, Neil. You're very welcome.